Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Today was day 47 of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings. Uh, this is Thursday on a week now that has been building up to the appearance uh, tomorrow of the spouse of the gunman Lisa Banfield. And the week has been uh, featuring different discussions and uh, evidences have been coming out about Ms. Banfield's experiences the history of the gunman is history of violence uh, towards Miss Banfield, towards others, and uh, the history of his family. Uh, all of these things sort of uh, building up into Miss Banfield's appearance tomorrow, uh, which we'll, uh, we'll talk about. But today was sort of a, a lull in that uh, momentum. It was a quiet day, relatively speaking, in the proceedings themselves with uh, two round tables sort of a, a calm before the storm, a chance for everybody to catch their breath before uh, Miss Banfield's uh, appearance, her appearance tomorrow. So yes, uh, I'll, so I'm going to talk about the two roundtables, and then what I thought I'd do, uh, because of the way that Miss Banfield is going to be testifying tomorrow, the fact that she's not going to be cross-examined, the, the uh, questions are all going to be asked by the Mass Casualty Commission uh, lawyers, and given the fact also that the commissioners have said because uh, the Commission Council are uh, there to represent the public, that they are there to ask the questions that need to be asked. So I have some suggested questions, questions that I think would be appropriate cross-examination or direct questions that uh, I think the Mass Casualty Commission lawyers should be asking of uh, Ms. Banfield. So uh, I'll go through some of those after I talk about the two uh, panels that were held today. All right, so uh, the first one, uh, they were both about uh, sort of predicting mass shooters, uh, the psychology of mass shooters. So the first one was actually called um, Prediction and Prevention of uh, Mass Casualty Events. And it featured uh, Professor Benjamin uh, Berger from the Osgoode Law School in Toronto, Dr. Myrna Lashley from McGill, Montreal, Professor Nicholas Rose from King's College London, Professor George Schmuckler from King's College London, and uh, Robert Wright, uh, Nova Scotian, uh, Executive Director of the African Nova Scotian Justice Institute. Uh, Dr. Wright, uh, somebody I've uh, encountered a number of times now, he was a witness at the Desmond Inquiry on behalf of the Health Association of African Canadians. Uh, was uh, made a, a valuable contribution then. I've seen him speak at the uh, law school as well. Uh, very well respected uh, Nova Scotia. Okay, so uh, now, so the, this panel is sort of talking about how do we predict uh, mass shootings and what is out there as far as predictive tools, you know, um, psychological tools, uh, questionnaires, things that you can analyze about individuals that uh, can give you a sense of their propensity of violence, the likelihood that they will commit violence. And if anybody's seen the, the movie Minority Report, the Tom Cruise movie from 2002, where there's the precogs, the precognition of criminal events with uh, these beings where they'll be able to see the future, see the criminal event, prevent, uh, send the police in, prevent it. Well, if we think that is the goal of any sort, well, we are very, very far away from that. Uh, the, the experts today were, were talking about tools that were had error rates in the 85 to 90 percent range uh, that they, you know, their best testing was wrong, uh, false positive six out of seven times. Uh, that, depending on you know the degree of specificity with which you're asking certain questions, all these things. So uh, the there's an overwhelming risk of 
false positives when they do these predictive exercises with the best testing that's available according to these experts anyway. So uh, reminds, well, it brought to mind for me anyway the, the Blackstone Doctrine. Uh, people will be familiar with that it's better for 10 guilty persons to go free than one innocent to suffer. Uh, that was applying to executions, but uh, criminal activity or sanctions, generally speaking, uh, sort of accepting that ratio, uh, the, the Blackstone ratio. So, with, but with these risk assessments, the if any action was, if we were thinking of doing anything in advance, predictive, uh, the risk assessments would be sort of the inverse of that. Nine innocents would be suffering for every one that was found to be guilty. So anyway, they seem, um, you know, of course there's risk factors like ownership, access to automatic weapons, alcohol, certain mental health uh, challenges and such things. But um, otherwise, the predictive factors uh, don't seem to be, the tools, that is, don't seem to be very effective. So that's that. Uh, the, uh, one other thing that I noticed, uh, Dr. Wright, or sorry, Robert Wright, I think he's probably, well, he's probably has honorary degrees. Dr. Wright uh, spoke about uh, the resources and he, he was he didn't say all this very directly, but his point was this. Uh, the resources that are being directed at this question through the Mass Casualty Commission compared to, say, the resources that are being used or uh, were used for the uh, inquiry into the Home for Color Home for Colored Children, sorry, hard to say that, even though that was the name of the place. And uh, sexism, the, the battles against racism and sexism in Nova Scotia, the um, just the sheer resources that are being put into the Mass Casualty Commission as compared to those, uh, he alluded to in a very uh, polite way. So uh, that was the uh, that was the first one. The uh, so I, I look at this and I think, well, what's what's the point of all that? I think. The RCMP will certainly point to this and say, well, listen, criminal intelligence predicting uh, who might do what is very difficult. And so, you know, yes, a few things went wrong, missed a couple of things, but, you know, give us a break. Uh, I think what the Mass Casualty Commission, what I think of this, what I see is, is interoperability problems, you know, information not being passed from one police agency to another. Sort of, so, you know, we saw the, the criminal intelligence bulletin that just didn't seem to be acted upon because it was coming from Truro to the RCMP and into Halifax, so all that stuff. Uh, so, that, you know, to me, it just bolsters an argument for a singular uh, unified police force, or at least common platforms if there's going to be uh, still remaining various municipal units. All right, so that was the first uh, session. Uh, interesting in certain ways. Second one was dealing with the psychology and the sociology of uh, perpetrators of mass casualty events and the uh, definitions uh, to be used when talking about mass casualty events, and this uh, featured uh, professors Tristan Bridges and Terry Tober. I think I said University of California, uh, Santa Clara last time when I, so they testified earlier this week. It was actually uh, US Santa Barbara, if that matters. Uh, it also featured Professor David Hoffman from uh, University of New Brunswick and Dr. Angelique Jenny from the University of Calgary. So. Talking about the psychology, sociology of perpetrators, lots of discussions about uh, the academic debates that seem to be going on um, within the community that talks about such things, about the definition of mass casualty and whether it should include uh, domestic violence cases or whether you know that's a subset that should be studied on its own. So. Uh, there was that kind of a debate that seems to be going on. So the the experts that we uh, that we were hearing from today 
self-identified at least that they were in the minority that agreed that or that proposes that the definition does include uh, events that are uh, domestic violence, um, you know, as a sort of a dominant causing uh, causal effect of it. So that was that was interesting that the experts that were brought in uh, took that view. Um, other debates that seem to be going on are whether the definition of mass casualty requires that the perpetrator be uh, trying to fur or doing so on the basis of some ideology or some, you know, some uh, personal grievances. So there was uh, that that question as well debated. And this is all kind of interesting stuff. Lots of time taken on the debate about what a mass casualty uh, might be, how the definition is has evolved over some time, but uh, you might think that, okay, well, let's turn our expertise attention to this event that we're studying, the events of April 18th, 19th, 2020, and talk about how it fits into that debate, that ongoing debate over the definition of mass casualty, whether this is considered a domestic violence uh, sort of dominant event, or if that's a feature of it, or whether that has whether, what significance that might have to how it's defined or how it's considered, all of those things and, and how, you know, how it should be studied. You would think maybe that would be a, a good topic for these experts to, uh, to go through. But as we've seen with other experts that have been brought in by the Mass Casualty Commission, they talk about their general expertise in the area of expertise, and at no point are they asked or uh, are they seem uh, inclined to volunteer any opinions on the events. It seems as though, in fact, I would say that they're told uh, we are not going to talk about uh, these events specifically. So really limiting factor of, uh, of today's discussion um, and then a limiting factor of the expertise generally that's been brought into the mass casualty. So those are the two panels today. I want to talk a little bit, I want to get to Miss um, Banfield and the questions I think uh, she should be asked. First thing, I always want to ask somebody as a witness, what they've done to prepare. Uh, you know, we saw, we've seen witnesses come in and say, well, I haven't read anything. You know, I haven't looked at anything. I haven't, you know, haven't thought about this in two years. Okay, well, you expect a certain degree of, um, you know, memory loss at some point because if something's not being reinforced. Uh, others, they have, uh, you know, they've, okay, I've been watching this every day. I've been watching proceedings. Uh, you know, I've read my statements over and over again. I'm ready, you know. So you get a different expectation of what the person is going to present to you in their uh, in their evidence. So I think it would be important first just to know what Miss Banfield's done. Uh, you know, she's got a very good lawyer out of Toronto looking after her. It was in the news today uh, explaining uh, why he thought it. Uh, this is James Lockyer from Toronto, uh, nationally known lawyer, certainly among lawyers anyway. I've mentioned his name before. So uh, saying in the news today that there shouldn't be cross-examination of Miss Banfield and that's justified because it might uh, further these uh, conspiracy theories. So... Um, anyway, interesting way, uh, interesting way to phrase that. Uh, he knows he, he wouldn't be saying any of those words accidentally. So, um, something to think about, but, um, good to know how much preparation she would have done. I would have think, I would think it would be extensive given that she has this, uh, you know, good lawyer that she's working with. And so I'm sure she's going to be ready for every question that comes, uh, but just uh, good to ask her. The other thing I'd want to know up front, just before getting into any details is the terms of her restorative justice. And I think she's, I think it's fair for her to talk about that. 
what was it? Was involvement in, in cooperation and testifying, was that all part of the arrangement that allowed her to get her criminal charges dropped? Has, uh, were there anything else and has all that been completed? So uh, those uh, be fair questions. Um, by the way, uh, just, just thinking about it, I'll talk about the other questions in a way. There's going to be a lot of uh, pressure on whichever lawyer is chosen to ask these questions. You know, it's a really uh, delicate balance uh, for whoever's chosen. I mean, it should, I, I expect it will be Emily Hill, uh, the lead lawyer for the Mass Casualty Commission. It, but if it's any, especially if it's any other lawyer, uh, they'll really be under pressure. You know, this is this is a big moment. It's a delicate balance. You know, um, you have to have some respectful restraint talking to a person who has uh, certainly been accepted by the commission and uh, and many others as a, a victim of domestic violence. So you want to be respectful in that sense. On the other hand, because there's no cross-examination taking place, and of course that's controversial, there's been uh, comments from the families, participants, and the public. Because of that, the lawyer's going to feel that they need to apply some some pressure to the you know to in some sense apply apply some yeah or show a willingness at least to to go after uh, you know some elements of Miss Banfield's story to follow up on certain questions those sorts of things so uh, I think you'll see some of that as a way of justifying uh, what uh, the procedure that's been chosen but if it doesn't go well um, that uh, lawyer there there'll be lots of Lots of people uh, pointing fingers and, um, you know, turning not at themselves. So there, there's some, some pressure there. So other questions, I guess. So think about things about beforehand. So we've heard about Constable Wiley having gone to visit uh, 15, 16 times. How well did she know him? What was that all about? Uh, other officers that visited? Anybody that she can identify, think of? Anybody see the replica car? Anything like that? Um, you know. Did she ever tell anybody about the replica car? What did she think about it? Did she ever come across? Did she ever get the sense that it ever occurred to her how dangerous that would be that uh, the person she knew to be extremely violent and uh, with access to all these firearms also had a replica police vehicle? Uh, did that occur to her? Why didn't she tell anybody about it? What, um, what did she think about all that? Uh, I think it's fair to ask. Uh, what did she think it was going to be for? Um, in an interview that she did, it was the April 28th one, on page 26, line 786, she's just uh, talking about being in the woods, she goes into this truck, and then she leaves the truck, and at that time, she says, if he's seen the truck, then maybe he would throw, you know, blow that up. So, uh, this, what was that? Sounds like a grenade. Miss Banfield was asked if uh, she knew about Wartman having grenades, she said no, but uh, just that response, she seems to catch herself, and then she, the, you know, the questioning moves on. Uh, she seems to catch herself there about to say, uh, throw a grenade. Well, uh, what did she know about all that? She seems to know a little more than she let on. And the other thing that makes me say that is later in the same interview, she's talking about her knowledge of the cross-border uh, smuggling of firearms, which is really the key issue here in terms of access to firearms in the arsenal. I don't know why there's not more attention paid to that. But uh, what does she know about that? She started talking about it a little bit, and then you could you could tell Staff Sergeant Vardy was starting, the wheels were turning. He's like, wait a second. Maybe she knew more about this cross-border stuff than I thought she did. And he starts, uh, I talked about this the other day, giving her this uh, sort of improvised charter warning. 
uh, paraphrase the you know the warning like you you know you could be in trouble you could you know you could talk to somebody to the point where she starts asking should I have a lawyer here and it's uh, you know too late for that kind of a warning on his side but then she he kind of steered her into saying oh, actually well you know you probably only overheard things and didn't have any direct knowledge of the cross border stuff right right and uh, she's like oh yes yes of course. No direct knowledge. I just kind of overheard a few things, and that's kind of what he said. You know, he talked about putting it in the uh, the cover of the truck. You flip that over, and um, all that stuff. Although we've heard, I think, in others from other sources that he had uh, places underneath the truck as well, a fake um, secondary exhaust system, that sort of thing. So, what did you know about that? I mean, that would be important to find out. It might inform cross border security and help uh, keep us safe instead of all these other side issues and the political controversy that's going on over who pressure pressure on people to identify makes and models of firearms that aren't legal anyway so all that stuff so um so those were those would be fair questions i think for uh, miss banfield to answer about sort of pre uh, event uh, knowledge and then you know um Oh, yeah, there was a, an article that came out in the Examiner this week about a, a trip that Wartman made to Pictou County a month beforehand in March of 2020 to go after a man named Kit McKenzie. This is over a, a property deal in Fredericton that where Kit McKenzie got this piece of property. Wartman seemed to believe he was entitled to it, but um, anyway, led to uh, probably an attempt to go after, find and kill this McKenzie guy. And there's some allegation or some uh, theory as well, a credible one, I, the way I look at it, that on the morning of the 19th, after being at Sean McLeod and Lana Jenkins' home, Wartman then went to Picto trying again to find Kit McKenzie. So what does she know about that? I think it would be fair to ask her. That was a month beforehand. Is she aware that he went to Picto? That sort of thing. Uh, good uh, questions there. Uh, the, the event itself, yeah. So any idea why he left? you uh, and didn't chase after you more i mean that, that would be a, a question i mean it was very risky if he had all these plans to go after all these other people and you know had all this sort of planned out thought through he's going to need some time and it was very risky to leave a witness behind that might call the police and uh, you know short circuit the whole thing so uh does she have any thoughts on that i think she i think we need to hear what she has to say about that i mean it was unusual um uh, you know, nobody, nobody's making any comparisons to other mass shootings where the spouse was left alive uh, as the first victim. Yes, uh, certainly um, suffered injuries, but uh, left alive, uh, that hasn't been seen before. So what does she think? Uh, I think it would be nice to hear what she has to say there. She said she threw her coat off. Uh, it, was, it was gone. Uh, nobody found it. What does she have to say about that? Uh, slippers. There's a pair of slippers found in DeBert next to the police boots and a few other things of Wartman's, from Wartman's car where he parked overnight. Size 8 uh, looked like female slippers. Are those hers? Any idea why they were there? Uh, that was um, that was curious when I heard it. Uh, how and when did she hear? I think this is, you know, the Nothing really turns on this, but I think people are going to want to hear, like, how and when did she hear the scale of events? Um, what does she, you know, does she think about those people? Does she know why Wartman would have targeted each one? What is, you know, I think she needs to go through that and uh, say say what she thinks. Uh, tell us what she knows, um, 
you know, what did she feel when she heard everything? I think people are going to want to hear her say that, uh, difficult as it may be for her to do so. And, you know, why, why didn't she speak out publicly before now? Like, why not go to some sort of a controlled event early on and explain as she has explained many times since she has no, it doesn't seem like she has a, has a real difficulty explaining what happened to her. Uh, in police interviews or whatever, in some controlled environment that could have been released publicly, why wouldn't she come and just say what happened? I mean, yes, there's risk of criminal consequences, but if, uh, you know, everything she has been saying publicly seems designed to help her avoid criminal consequences, I think she could have done that in an, a public event early on. I think it would have benefited her public reputation and um, would have made a big difference to uh, to many people. So... Why didn't she do that? I think that's uh, that's a question. So lots uh, to come tomorrow. Um, uh, some some you know, there's only only so much time to question Miss Banfield, but uh, hopefully we'll get some real answers and some insight into what really happened uh, today. Was a day where uh, we got some insight into what might happen and what uh, is very difficult to predict, but. Um, Tomorrow, hopefully, we'll hear some facts and some uh, some real insight into what took place in the events of April 18th, 19th, 2020. All right, so that's it. Uh, so we'll check in with you after that tomorrow. Uh, until then, um, certainly uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for watching, and we'll uh, see you next time.